Jeremy. Um, I am so excited to have you on the show. And I am very excited because you live a really different life than many of our guests. Many of our guests are those rebels who can never fit in an organization. <laughs> that they left this big organization to go start their own thing to change the world. And you actually kind of flip it around that you started as a designer creator person then went in a bunch of interesting areas and have mostly thrived in large organizations. So I'm going to have you talk about the mid-sized organization you're at now to maybe get us started. Can you tell us about Merlin? Uh, absolutely. And, and thanks for having me. And if we have time, I could go back even further and talk about my origins where I used to be really into punk rock. Okay, we're uh, going to do that. So let's <laughs> do talk about Merlin first, but I definitely want right. to go there. Let's talk about Merlin first, which I am a, a huge proponent of and still feel humbled that I get to lead this organization. Uh, Merlin's been uh, around for 14 years, and it was born of a vision to ensure balance in the digital marketplace. And what Merlin does is strike premium deals with digital music services. So think services like Apple, Spotify, TikTok, YouTube, uh, our recently announced Twitch deal to ensure that independents not only can have access to the digital marketplace, but that they can have access with best-in-class terms. And even further, Merlin serves as a bridge into that ecosystem. So instead of being an intermediary, what we do is we strike the deals with the partners, and then our members that are around the world uh, representing the largest and most far-reaching collection of independent music, they can have direct access to digital partners. They deliver direct, they market direct, and they manage their relationships direct, and they do it through the deals that we strike on their behalf. So we're going to un unpeel that. I keep my metaphor, my brain was un <laughs> opening an onion up, but we're going to kind of end up back there again because I, I want to hear about the punk rock thing. Okay, so <laughs> you were interested in punk rock or that you were doing punk rock, or both? I, uh, I would say more interested than doing it. My, my career in music was luckily short-lived uh, for the fans who benefit from me not being in the music space. Uh, and I have a huge passion for music. I love it. I've been a devourer of it forever. Uh, it got my start uh, with punk music and then ska, uh, I then sort of evolved into Britpop, and then now it's virtually any genre you can think of I enjoy. Uh, but and represent. What, and represent. <laughs> uh, and what I learned, though, is that my passion at the time was, I'm a huge creative. I, I have a lot of creative outputs. I write. Uh, I, when I had time, I used to do photography pretty diligently. Uh, I love to draw. And I always wanted to be uh, in music, not because I necessarily wanted to be a famous artist, but I just love the creative output. And what I've learned over my career is that I've taken my creativity and channeled it into the spaces that I understand and work with best. And that's uh, in the technology space that intersects with music. So that was growing up where? So I was born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, but then spent a, a great deal of time in Orange County. 
in Orange so this County. This is the Orange County punk scene or the Long Beach punk scene? Uh, it was both, in fact. Uh, so you know your history. <laughs> actually, uh, no Long Beach punk rockers, so that's part of it. <laughs> I'm actually trying to remember. There was a store in Long Beach where I used to buy my Manic Panic uh, hair dye. And I still can recall my dad's face when I dyed my hair purple. Uh, that was also a very short-lived phase because I have, well, when I had hair, uh, it's very dark. Uh, yes. And I had to bleach it to be able to dye it. And I, I can recall 30 years ago, I don't think I terribly loved the bleaching, bleaching process, which may be why I'm no longer in the punk rock scene. So if I had had <laughs> lighter hair, perhaps I would have had a very different life. Uh, but yes, that was, uh, there was a very vibrant music scene. Uh, in Orange County at that time. And I was a huge part of that with friends. I can recall going to shows two, three times a week uh, throughout my high school years. So Jeremy in high school wanted to do what? And what did Jeremy's parents think that Jeremy was going to do when Jeremy was in high school? What did mm. you tell What did you tell yourself and what did you tell your family? It's a great question. Uh, I, so the short answer is uh, I had no idea. Uh, the even shorter answer is, I thought I wanted to go into the CIA. Now, why did I actually want to go into the CIA? I think I was just really into James Bond films. Uh, and I thought there was something uh, enticing about the idea of what that could entail. I presume the reality of being in the CIA is quite different than uh, the image I had in my head. And what I then discovered is that I really had a passion that developed later in life around academics, which is what led me in, into college, kind of doing what I've now done my whole career, which is always being a bit over my skis, always um, doing more than I may think I'm capable at the time. And just to give a concrete example about that, I was taking graduate level classes my second year of college. As uh, one should, I totally believe <laughs> one should be doing that. <laughs> Uh, my favorite people when I taught graduate students were the undergrads who begged in and snuck into my classes. Those are my favorite people in the world. I definitely begged and snuck in and had to convince them that I could hold my own. Uh, but I really, I really enjoyed it. It really, I, I definitely felt outside of my comfort zone. And I realized at an early age, that was something that really appealed to me. So college for you was where? So college for me was UC Berkeley, uh, and I it was a fantastic uh, experience for me. I, I started off as a rhetoric major. Now, uh, what is rhetoric for those people who think of Cal as a science school mm. or maybe a, a, a liberal arts school? What the heck is rhetoric? Yeah, the, the best way I could describe it is uh, philosophy meets the Socratic method. Uh, so parents were going, we love this kids getting a rhetoric degree. We can see what the heck this is going to do for him. Yes. Between my, my punk rock phase uh, bleeding into my rhetoric uh, or potential rhetoric degree, which then translated into an international relations degree. Uh, I think my parents just probably threw their hands up in the air. I was the third kid. And I, I think they had just had a sense he'll figure it out at some point. I sympathize because probably not a totally different period of time, maybe a little a ways ahead of you. Um, I did the same thing and ending up three degrees trials into USC film school. where My parents were going, 
We don't know what she's going to do with it. <laughs> we aren't really sure if she'll have a job, but we will just hold our breath and see if it works. Well, that so if my parents were concerned enough at that phase, I then decided to move to New York without a job uh, and without any sense of what I was going to do next. And if we come back to this theme of I always like to be a little bit over my skis because I, li I like to feel challenged. Uh, I started applying for jobs as a brand designer. Oh, uh, yes. okay. And this was this is a sort of two-year uh, journey or part of my journey before I went to law school. I took a job as a brand designer at uh, an ISP. Uh, it was called Juno Online. It was a competitor to AOL, which I'm now dating myself. Uh, and if there's two things I can tell you I didn't know how to do when I got that job is, uh, number one, I didn't know how to design. And number two is I didn't know anything about branding. And so I took a job that I had absolutely no skill set to be in, which also speaks a little bit to the, that initial dot-com boom and what they were looking for uh, and the need for talent. And just threw myself into it. I think for the first week, I probably spent 100 hours just learning how to use different programs and design and throwing myself into it and really had a very unique experience in New York uh, in the creative space. I was a brand designer. I was doing copywriting. Uh, I started a mini fashion line. I was doing a fashion blog. I was really like threw myself into the creative space, which is that other side of myself that always asserts itself. This need for creative output, which uh, I get that from my mom, who's an artist. Uh, and then the other side of myself asserts itself, my dad, who's an engineer, uh, and that's when I decided to do a, another 180 and go back to school and decided to go to law school. So we go from love punk rock, we go to rhetoric, we go to poli sci, we go to brand design, but way over your skis and to the, so, so you've got lots of risk-taking of this agent stage yeah. and then law school which is such a risky now this is it's a risk averse field yeah. yes yes it is uh and it on its surface it looks like someone who's kind of almost rudderless not quite sure where they want to go or doing their career uh for me it was in fact a very intentional decision about what i wanted my career to look like And this was me deciding for the kind of final time that I didn't want the creative fields to be my profession, right? I wanted, I wanted to continue with creative output, uh, which I've done and continue to do uh, at, at a personal level. But I had this real strong desire to engage this more strategic part of my brain, this logical side that's very process oriented, Uh, that likes problem solving. My wife would call it figured out itis. I have a figured out itis syndrome. And when I went to law school, I had a lot of conversations with friends. I had a lot of people told me not to go, but I had a very conscious plan in mind about what I wanted to do. And as sort of kind of crazy as it might sound, I'm actually doing, and my career has reflected exactly what I've wanted to do. I had a very conscious decision that I wanted to eventually run a company. 
And I thought at the time, at least when I went to law school, if there'd be one little pivot around it, I thought I would start my own. Uh, but what I'm doing now as CEO of Merlin is in fact what I intended to achieve by going to law school. It, it was, it was in a sense, it was the flip side of going to business school. A lot of people go to law school with the intention of getting into the business side. And that's how I approached it. So um, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Why have you not started? Why did you not start your own business? And when you've had pivot times, why have you not started your own business? Well, I, I did start a mini business in terms of the fashion line I was doing, where I was selling to four or five stores and just sort of kicking that off. So I've always had this entrepreneurial sense to what I wanted to do in life. Uh, if I had to say why, I think there's never been an inflection point where I haven't had the next opportunity come my way, where I've had the space to, de to determine what I would want to do on my own, whether in terms of starting my own business or creating space to do, do this, do a venture on my own. Whereas the five years I spent at a law firm, the next opportunity presented itself as I was looking to make my decision about what to do next. And that happened, uh, sort of happened at each stage of my career where the next opportunity has presented itself that I've been really excited about. So um, I tend to call these postcard moments <laughs> Back in my time, and, and people who listen to the show have heard me talk about this, that um, when I was thinking about what I want to do, I had a TA send a postcard with my grade to me saying, you should think of applying to film school. And <laughs> so to me, it's the thing that sort of planned happen chance is actually, there's research yeah. on this, which I find fascinating, the, that it dumps into your lap and you kind of go, oh, I'm at the framing point where that looks cool. Yeah. How how have these things walked in your door? How have the postcards or planned happen chance or the next thing walked in? I like that term uh, a lot. Uh, I've always viewed it as creating enough space that luck finds you. Uh, and the example, uh, I'll actually use the example of how um, I got this opportunity at Merlin. Uh, when uh, in between law school uh, and then where I eventually went to work at Facebook, uh, I spent nine years working at Warner Music, which is one of the larger uh, record companies or one of the big three record companies. And part of that was working for a division called ADA, which was their independent distribution arm. Um, most people the don't realize that exists. Mm, that yeah. I think at all the majors, aren't there independent distribution arms at all, all the majors still? Each of the majors, yes, has its own uh, independent distribution arm. Some of them have their own uh, DIY uh, platforms as well. Think of DistroKid, uh, but owned and operated by a major. So, yes, they're all looking at that space uh, and uh, have services in that space. So ADA was the equivalent uh, for Warner Music. Uh, one of the people I got to meet uh, at that time was a gentleman named Dave Hansen, who was GM of Epitaph Records at the time. Uh, he eventually became, and uh, just recently stepped down, he was the executive chairperson for my first two years at Merlin. In between where I met him at ADA and the, the outreach they did looking for the next CEO of Merlin, I spent time with him. Not because I had any expectation of something in return, not because I, I wanted something from him. I simply I enjoyed his company. I thought he was incredibly smart. I thought he was incredibly talented. 
uh, I sometimes went to him for perspective. And that's what I mean by creating space for luck to find you. He was the one who recommended me as part of the search uh, to apply for the opportunity. Uh, obviously, I got it because of the full board and going through the entire process. But that's just one example in my career, at least, where I always call this the, the network effect with nothing in, in expected in return. And that's a lot of what I've found in my career. The same thing happened to me at Facebook. Uh, the woman who hired me at Facebook was uh, who ran the music team was a woman named Tamara Rivnack. We had actually overlapped at the law firm uh, and Warner Music. And I, once again, simply stayed in touch with her when she left to go to YouTube, not because I had any expectations of something in return from her. Same thing as Dave. I thought she was really smart. I thought she was really strategic. And when she went over to Facebook to start the music team, she, once again, here's someone who reached out to me, seeing if I was interested in the opportunity. And that's something that, you know, I would recommend to anyone in their career, which is the outreach without expectation return. Uh, and and I would also suggest the investment, too. So it's not just the outreach. Um, so I've just finished 22 years of teaching at UCLA, and I tend to bring lots of people in to come talk to students. And what I've been getting more and more from young people, get off my lawn, uh, from young people, <laughs> is that they go, how do you know so many people? And it's like, well, you need to keep sprouting and investing in other people. And I actually had a, a, a young person, young person talk to me recently and go, how do you know who to invest time in? And I always have to come back to, you mean, why they should invest time in you? Because it's those people who then, you know, diaspora around that then, you know, you've got that reputation. You've, in, yeah. you've invested in each other as to human beings that then sprout something in the later date. I, yeah, absolutely. I've always had people throughout my career who've invested in me and made time and space for me. And that's become so critical to my success that it's a huge component of what I also want to give back. I, as, as, I, as I develop more, as my responsibilities become more, it's more challenging to continue to do that. But because I had so many people who did that for me, it's uh, critically important to me to try to give back to that, uh, to the ecosystem, to help that next generation break through, find their lane and figure out how to succeed in what's increasingly a really complicated um, uh, world that we live in. So then you went from law school to time as a lawyer to time um, working with the independent distribution. So you were moving into a, I'm in a big corporation and I'm facilitating <laughs> for independence maneuvering within a large organization. How did you bring your superpowers to bear for that? And what did you learn? Because you actually, from my understanding, you did a, a similar role of big Facebook and independence as well. So mm -hmm. how does how do you balance that standing between and working with large organizations and small organizations? Hmm. Each one is unique. There, there's no doubt about that. You know, Warner, at least at the time, Warner Music was probably around 5,000 people. Facebook, 60,000 people. Uh, I currently have a team of about 40 around the world. Uh, <laughs> which, 
which is great. Uh, it's uh, it's a new experience. It's a very much a new experience for me to be in a much smaller organization. Uh, even the law firm was probably several thousand people around the world. Uh, what's great about a smaller organization is your ability to have a dramatic impact uh, on people uh, and your ability to learn more in depth about each person. Uh, one of the things that I learned about um, people at Warner was that concept of walking the halls. And I remember when I was first introduced, this is back when we were in offices, you could walk the halls. Uh, when I was introduced to this concept by someone who once again, taken an interest in me, I didn't really fully understand what it meant. What do you mean just pop into people's offices and just wander around and talk to people? Uh, and it, it's very much like the, the network effect of people, which is the more conversations you have, the more commonality you find, the more opportunity that you can uncover. And with my company now, I've translated that into, obviously I have my calls with my team leads, but I also try to create space for every individual on the team by having one-on-ones and not just check-ins, but very, once again, intentional, conscious conversations about what are they working on. So each one-on-one -on -one I have isn't just, let me pick up the phone and see how they're doing or get on Zoom with them. I try to speak with people around their teams. I, I look back at the goals that they set for themselves for the year so that I can actually lean in and have this much more productive conversation and um, create this commonality, these bonds within the company that are always being created within the company, but that I sort of treasure myself um, in leading it. So you've said a couple of times, leaning out over your skis. You came into this current role not that many days ahead of the pandemic. So how has this role that you've had since early 2020 been leaning out over your skis? Mm -hmm. And what's been your biggest takeaway from that lean out? Yeah, let me provide some context for that. I, I started in this role at Merlin in January of 2020. Uh, it was the first time change in CEO for the company. Uh, and uh, similarly, I was a first time CEO. Uh, and the COVID, uh, I think we shut our offices down about 60 days into my tenure. Uh, and suddenly I was running a company dramatically differently, like many people around the world than I expected to be doing. Uh, and for me, I felt a huge responsibility, not just running the company, but the nature of our members is that there is a huge dependence on how we perform to ensure that they can run their businesses, they can maximize um, value, they can provide more to their artists. And suddenly, not only am I a first-time CEO of a company, but we're in this really unique situation. Uh, and uh, it was a little terrifying, to be honest. Uh, I wasn't, you know, there was that moment where you just sort of like, you're a deer in the headlight and you just freeze. You're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then if you just stop and think about all the things you've learned over your career, all the people you're surrounded by, I have an incredible board to lean on. I had an executive chairperson. Uh, I have a really strong leadership team. All these were people that I could lean on where I didn't have to solve it myself. I had to identify the challenges 
identify the blockers, and then put teams in place and process in place to provide more, to get more out of whatever the situation was. And then once you recognize that, then you, you know, once again, if you're not dealing with a supply chain problem, right, I literally can't get parts for my machines, right? We're not that. We're a digital-only company. Uh, and so we didn't have the problems that, say, you would have in manufacturing or you would have in retail. And it actually provided us a very unique opportunity to help our members in what was a really challenging time, whether it was through the deals we did, whether it was through the perspective we could provide for them, whether it was the support we could give them behind the scenes. And for us, it was really energizing because it made our mission, which was so important in the first place, even more important for our members. So, from my understanding of Merlin, that you guys bring the superpower of both scale and context to smaller labels who otherwise you would say, hi, Apple Music, Spotify, please give me a better deal. Please give me information. Please give me context. And you in a business where it's a big company matching up against a big company, help make smaller labels together into a bigger company to talk with these large digital service providers. Is that a decent synopsis or is it way too simplistic? It's both. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good synopsis. You know, we leverage the collective might of, you know, the independent space and our members uh, to give them best in class deals, but still allow them to work directly with digital partners. Uh, and that means that they get the best of all worlds. They get the ability to own their futures and their independence, to work directly with the digital partners, get access to best-in-class deals that they couldn't achieve on their own so that they can compete in the marketplace, and then have our support. And, and that means if they needed support on operational issues, so they need support on how to get more value out of the partnership. And that ranges from small labels that may only have a team of 10 in a single country to some of our distributor members who may have hundreds of employees and are quite large. So we have a really broad range of members, all of whom have different needs. And the great uh, component to Merlin that's so unique is because we operate like a not-for-profit, all I need to do is cover an operating budget. And as long as I cover my budget then the rest is really just about driving value to our members. We only succeed if they succeed. Our interests are entirely aligned with theirs. And that was what was so, provided so much um, uh, sort of value to our, us as a team during this COVID period uh, that we knew the impact we were having on our members' lives, their artists' lives, and there's something to that and the resilience that it can build by knowing that you're having an impact of that scale that's provided a lot of sort of um, meaning to people uh, during the last two years. So you've got an interesting set of challenges or set of, a set of being out over your skis. Uh, we're recording this during the Winter Olympics, so I keep coming back to others, <laughs> you know. Snowboarding, I don't know. Uh, but thinking about um, that you're having a uh, now working from home still, largely both clients and your own core team. 
I'm assuming you've had a little bit of the great resignation to deal with, or maybe not. I know that in a lot of the creative companies I'm working with, they've had significant turnover over the past year um, and needed to create strategic directional changes. How do you have a North Star into your work? How are you kind of dealing with some of these uh, time-based challenges or, or or pandemic-based challenges as a new CEO? How do you sort of think about this stuff? How do you frame it? Mm. Uh, yeah, no, like let's... There's 12 questions <laughs> in that question. It, it, no, I mean, I love all of them. Uh, why don't I start with our, our North Star? Uh, our North Star is enable independence and celebrate music. Uh, those are the two guiding lights for everything else that drives our company. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer, let me give one answer and then you can dive into or ask one of the other questions. Around again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when we were uh, structuring our values, our company values, uh, obviously we started with our North Star. Uh, and one of the values that uh, I found extraordinarily important was this concept of build a culture of shared ownership. And by that, I mean, it's not your, anyone's responsibility to do someone else's job. But what it is, is a, a motto, a theme, a value of, I care about everyone else's job. I care what they're going through. I care that they have their own challenges that they're dealing with. I'm cognizant of those. I know that if I can help them do their jobs better, then we can have more impact collectively as an organization. And a simple example of that is I am cognizant of constraints that others might have, whether what week payment runs go out to our members and being cognizant of, of their time and how that's a very busy week for them. Uh, I'm cognizant that we've just signed a new deal and that our commercial partnerships team is helping all of our members to action that and to lean into the partnership. So they may have constraints on their time. So taking this concept of we all here at Merlin because we want to have impact, because we love music, because we have this incredible platform across our global membership to achieve that through our partnerships, then if I take that interest, if I care more about everyone I work with, uh, we can do more of that. And that's been um, really helpful into reframing how we approach our jobs, especially when we're working from home uh, I feel very lucky we have not had a great resignation. Uh, I think we have an incredibly strong culture. Uh, and I think people value what they're able to do uh, across our partnerships and memberships. And in fact, it's very vast what we do. We punch above our weight. If we go back to always feeling low over our skis, right now we're only 40 people managing about 40 partnerships uh, and 500 plus members from every corner of the world representing every genre uh, and every type of label and other sort of rights holder and distributor you can imagine. Uh, that's a really exciting challenge to be involved in. And I think so, everyone appreciates that opportunity. So other than the pandemic, <laughs> which is <laughs> other than the elephant in the room, um, what has been an aha for you in coming into this leadership role and in this opportunity after being in big companies. Has there been something about this change that made you kind of go, oh, crap, I didn't see this coming, or um, I now see how something of my past has unfolded into this opportunity? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I like this question. Uh, I would say the biggest aha for me that I wasn't fully appreciating when I came in is how much, well, twofold. One is uh, how much more challenging it is when you don't have the same level of resources uh, that you might at a different company. Now, there's all sorts of resource constraints at large companies as well. Uh, so I didn't fully appreciate the resource constraint. Um, but coupled with that is a nimbleness that I didn't fully expect either. And the ability to quickly move uh, in new directions, spin up new workflows. Uh, we use this concept of strategic pods uh, really effectively across the company when we have maybe a naughty challenge that we're trying to deal with uh, or whether we have a sort of deal cycle. We have these pods that we put together and we can spin those up really quick and we can spin them down really quick. And that really, I didn't, it, it, it's like a tech company. I didn't expect how quick we could move in certain areas. Uh, and that was really exciting uh, to see that. And then also just to uh, empower people to lean into that at the same time. Fascinating. I mean, it, it, you in many ways are working in a space of kind of poet quants of needing people who can deal with creative and deal with technical. And from your description, you are largely on the poet side, though the quant may be of the law side and the figuring <laughs> it out. How do you think about, I'm assuming hiring has been part of most of your jobs. Mm -hmm. How do you think of that in a smaller organization like yours? How, how do you think when you bring somebody in or you're hiring them, especially in this remote working dislocation environment, how do you bring in new people into this kind of poet quant world? Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully quite successfully. We've almost uh, more than, I think, I think it's 60% of people have started uh, in COVID right now. Wow. Uh, and in fact, we have uh, seven or eight open heads that we're currently hiring for. Uh, the, I think the number one um, attribute about the hiring process uh, that's been most successful uh, throughout my career, in fact, is transparency. Okay. I'm a big believer that when you hire someone, they should know as well as you can exactly what is going to be expected of them and what the role is. And similarly, you want to know exactly what their expectations are from the role. And that's proven to be quite helpful in making sure that you have a good fit. Uh, the second, which we've also deployed, uh, which there was a little bit of nervousness when we started doing it, is everyone who comes into the, the company, whether you're coming in as an engineer, whether you're coming in on the reporting team, finance, commercial partnerships, everyone gets some sort of test. Now, if it's more technical, you might get tested in Python language. Uh, if you're coming to finance, we're going to want to make sure that you have really good SQL or Altrix skills. Uh, but everyone gets something that shows two things. One is just their writing capabilities, their strategic capabilities to think through issues. And then more importantly, it also shows how much they're really interested in the role, right? Is this something that they really feel passionately about? Because we want to hire people who are going to be passionate about what we're doing because we think it's special. We think what we do for our members is really unique. And I feel really good about our team and that not only the people who are here when I arrived, uh, 
but the people that we've hired feel that way and feel really strong about the mission and the sort of how much we can help our members uh, in what they're trying to do. So we're getting near the end. I kind of have one more question for you and then I'll ask you what you want to make comments on. We haven't talked about maybe. Um, So you are um, a creative and step out of the box person at heart. We've shared how that's moved through your work life. How about the rest of your life? Are you, how Mm. are you leaning forward into creative spaces or personal spaces? Do you leave room for that? And how do you challenge (laughs) yourself? Great, great question. Uh, uh, I think the personal life is such a big component of finding satisfaction and enjoyment out of life. Uh, I have a big part of my life, uh, which is my wife and my daughter. Uh, I am fencing dad. Uh, my daughter's 10 now. She's been fencing for four years. Oh, cool. Uh, which is an incredibly uh, amazing sport. Uh and uh, so I spend a great deal of my weekends uh, at fencing tournaments. Uh, so my job is to record every bout that she has so we can watch them afterwards uh, and take notes with her about who she's fencing. Uh, so that's become a huge component of my life the last couple of years. I recently joined their board of directors. Uh, their mission vibes with me as well. They're a 501c3, a not- nonprofit. Uh, so I re- feel really good about being able to uh, give value back there. And then just at a personal level, all the things I spoke about earlier, you know, I, I, I can't do them as much as I used to like to, but the ability to write, the ability to draw, my daughter and I draw a lot together. Um, those are the sorts of outlets that I still have um, to sort of tap into the creative side of myself. And of course, I listen to music nonstop. If I'm not on Zoom, and sometimes even when I am, uh, I have music playing. Uh, and I, I want to it. give kudos to your wife, who's a designer, for some of the beautiful stuff behind you. So giving you a great environment also for everything you're doing as well. Her visual eye is incredible. Uh, I, I wish I could achieve uh, what she does. Uh, she's, a, she's a creative director and works a lot uh, within fashion and within brands. Uh, and uh, I've always appreciated uh, her eye. And when did you guys meet on this journey? Oh, we met. We are actually celebrating 20 years together uh, next month. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. And we met in San Francisco when I was in law school through a mutual friend. Uh, and it was one of those relationships that sort of started off a little slow. I was in law school's busy time for me. Uh, and then when I when I graduated, I you know told her, hey, I'm pretty serious about moving to New York to go work for this law firm. You know, think about whether that might be a part of your life. And, you know, there was almost like, Asking, it was almost like proposing to her. She said yes, and she came with me. Uh, and we've been together now um, for all this time and really uh, carved out a beautiful relationship for ourselves. You know, COVID is a great testing ground for, for how much you love your family. And uh, or rethinking uh, how you want to frame that <laughs> <laughs> and give them space. And yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've really bonded as a family during this time and leaned into each other. We spent um, two summers, uh, a month away, uh, all together uh, on an island. And uh, it's been um, a really great learning experience for us as a family and for us individually um, and come out stronger for it. So coming full circle, but not telling tales, mm-hmm. your daughter wants to do what? And how do you encourage that as a parent? Oh, wow. What does my 10-year-old daughter want to do? 
I've I've heard it all. Uh, she's she's gone through the litany of professions, uh, so I don't pay too much attention because it, it seems to change every month or two. I think right now she wants to be a writer, uh, which obviously I would encourage. Uh, the what I what I do is what really my uh, parents did for me, which is give me the tools for success later in life. Um, I'm very much agnostic to what she does. Um, but what I care is that she has the tools, she has the mindset to find success in whatever she might want to do in life. And, you know, when I look at what she's done in fencing, fencing is a crucible. Right? You can have a coach, you can have a community, and you need both to succeed. But similar to tennis, once you get out there, you're on your own. There's no one else. And you're always winning points and losing points. And you always have to come back. You always have to have the mindset there. And I feel like between the school and her teachers, her coach and fencing, what we try to do as a family, um, I hope we're giving her and preparing her for what I assume is going to be an even more complex world as we move forward. Jeremy, it's been great talking. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd want to mention that this sparks? Oh, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, the conversation. Uh, I'm going to share uh, something that um, matters greatly to me, which is, you know, my career has been a tale of two loves. Uh, I'm a huge and passionate fan of music. It's always been um, a big component of my life. And simultaneously, uh, technology's been there for me as well. Uh, my dad, my dad, who I mentioned was an engineer. We used to pull computers apart and put them back together again. Uh, I didn't go down this other rabbit hole we could have. I used to do, I used to be a computer coder or computer programmer uh, in my team. So teens. I'm poet quant. You've been both. Okay. I really have been both. And what I found is I found these two worlds that intersected and I found a way to carve a niche for myself. And what I would say is, you know, I'm very passionate about music. I'm very passionate about uh, uh, creative output, what, whatever form that might take. And I still have that as, my, as a part of my life, but I made that sort of conscious choice about what would drive sort of my ambitions and where did that lie? And that's where I made a decision to move from the creatives into supporting the creatives and this intersection of music and technology. And to me, it was all about making that decision and finding that inflection point. So look for those inflection points about places that you find most interesting that you want to spend your life on and dive into it because it's where I've really found my enjoyment. Well, Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us. Can people reach out to you at all? And how would you want them to reach out to you? Uh, I would welcome it. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us on our website, uh, MerlinNetwork.org. Uh, that's two ends. Uh, we're across the socials as well. Uh, I would welcome it. And we'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this.
Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024.